Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Despite the arguable social progress of the last 50 years, many people still choose to pass today. Black for white, gay for straight, and even in more unconventional ways. Passing is often thought of in negative terms, as deceitful, cowardly, or a betrayal of oneself. A recent book entitled Passing, When People Can't Be Who They Are, is written by our guest today on Radio Curious, Brooke Kroger, an associate professor of journalism at New York University. Her book reveals why many passers are people of good heart and purpose, whose dedication to pass is an attempt to bypass injustice and be more truly themselves. I spoke with Brooke Kroger from her office at New York University and asked her to begin by describing passing. comes from human nature. Passing comes from wherever there's prejudice, there's passing. I think that's just a bottom line. The way I define passing is when people effectively present themselves as other than who they understand themselves to be. And of course, this can be by intention, by design, or this can be completely inadvertent. And often it starts that way. In seeing how they're received in society, they realize that they have a host of other options. Well, what would be some examples Uh, Black for white, gay for straight, Jewish for Gentile, Gentile for Jewish, white for black, working class for higher class, male for female, female for male. What is someone's motivation for passing? I think there are three basic motivations when it's not inadvertent, and they are opportunity, safety, and adventure. With those examples in mind, can you give us some specific stories of passing that would be familiar to some people? Sure. Safety passing, of course, historically would be fleeing the slave master or fleeing the Nazis in Germany, World War II. Adventure passing would be one of the stories in my book. It's a very, very well-respected young poet winner of the Walt Whitman Prize, who takes on an entirely different persona to write about teeny bopper rock and roll, for example. That would be adventure passing with no major consequences. Opportunity passing is the most common, I think, and that crosses all lines. It would have to do with social situations, institutions, social settings, environments, where a person is being unjustly excluded and deploys the strategy of passing to get around that. For example? For example, gay in the military, gay in a seminary where gay ordination is still prohibited in that whatever denomination or church, 
Another example would be making friends in high school if you're a very, very light-skinned African-American and find that you have a cultural affinity to the white students, maybe just suppressing, editing out that part of your heritage, which one of my stories does. When we talk about that kind of passing, then we're talking about crossing a line of cultural identity. That's right. And remember that identities are often ascribed. They're assigned in many cases. They are not something we always get to choose. And those identities often have tremendous consequences for the ways we're allowed or able to live our lives. And so these are people who, first of all, have the possibility. Not everyone has the possibility. You have to be able to talk the talk and walk the walk in order to pass. But who seize on that opportunity, that privilege, if you will, and decide to achieve what are often very, very reasonable aims and ambitions to serve their country, to be a clergy person by creating a subterfuge to get through the gate. But there's something more to this. Oh, yeah. And that's what I want you to talk about. Because it involves often deception, subterfuge, as I said before, and other aspects that we are, as people, very uncomfortable with. There are six main stories in the book, six main case stories that I kind of thread the whole subject through. And in every case where these otherwise very honorable, likable individuals, all between the ages of late 20s and early 40s, were forced to the position of having to tell a lie, even in my adventuresome, whimsical case, they suffered. Lying is very, very difficult, both for the liars and for the lied too. That was one place where the subject gets quite complicated. And passing always involves these sort of moral and ethical thickets that really are hard to cope with. And yet sometimes the ambition is so strong and so reasonable that I, having started out with the idea that I would condemn this practice, that it was somehow dishonest, cowardly, came to a very, very different set of conclusions, simply watching people trying to live their one unrepeatable lives as something other than a social agenda struggle, which is the option you have when you can't achieve these rather ordinary aims and ambitions. That sounds kind of analytical. Can you give us some specifics of what your storyline is? Well, sure. I can tell you about some of the stories. The book starts with a young man who is born of a Jewish mother and a very light-skinned African-American father. The mother separates from the family when the young man is born. He never knows her name. He has no association. He learns it when he's 19 years old on the way to take his driver's test by glancing at his birth certificate, which he carried with him. He was raised in a very African-American-centric household. His father was a civil rights leader, a very good family. And yet, because of his appearance, which is highly ambiguous even still, he goes to a mixed school where, as is often the case, the lunch tables are separate. You make friends with the people who look like you. And he is, of course, absorbed into a Jewish crowd, even as early as early junior high school and before. What year are we talking about? We're talking about mid to late 80s into the early 90s, not so long ago. He lives in Baltimore. As he gets older, takes a job as a waiter in a restaurant for after-school work. It becomes very clear that all of the waiters are white, all of the bus staff are people of color. In that setting, one of the young bussers knows his family and says, are you sure you're not black? And of course, in this moment, he tells an outright lie. In other cases, he has a very convenient dodge because, of course, being the son of a Jewish mother, he is, by Jewish reckoning, as Jewish as you can be, even though he's never practiced and knows virtually nothing about the faith. 
except, you know, what he might know culturally from his Jewish friends. So it's a very complicated story. And in his own viewpoint, and of course he's moved beyond the passing now, as every one of my subjects has, people who are in the process of passing don't talk about it, so they wouldn't make a very good book. He goes through several episodes in his life of this nature and later comes to terms with his African-American heritage about the mid-90s, when he's really approaching his 30s. As he says, he had the choice of making his life a social agenda struggle or having the friends he chose to have, living the life he chose to have, having the cultural affinities he had, rather than inventing some other identity for himself. That's one story. Another story is a young woman who is... Puerto Rican from a very disadvantaged family, but she's a gifted student. She goes to school in a little upstate New York community where she's in the gifted classes, but no one will play with her. No one will be her friend. So she makes friendships with kids of her socioeconomic class who are more likely to be spending their weekends stealing hubcaps. She goes on to college. It's too expensive. She cannot remain in school. Even though she has a scholarship, she can't afford books. She quits, goes to work. Later on, and I consider this a class-passing story, she really adopts an Orthodox Jewish mantle. She goes through a full conversion, and it's another place where she doesn't quite find acceptance and often presents herself as a Sephardi Jew. In another story, a teacher in the South in a small community becomes very active in the community. It's a very segregated town. Her associations are African-American, even though she is white, at a certain point, one of her students' parents asks her if she will MC a charity event. And she's delighted and honored because it is, of course, an honor. And in going to the planning meetings, it suddenly becomes clear that everyone associated with this organization is African-American and that she has been chosen because the assumption has been made that she, too, is African-American, even though that would not be readily apparent from her appearance though, of course, African-Americans come in all colors and sizes and facial features. But she is not at all, has no African-American background, no known African-American background, certainly, and then finds herself in the situation deciding what to do since it's a few weeks from the event and a month or two before she is leaving town for good. She's a first-year teacher. And so she goes through great consternation about how to handle this episode. I won't give it all away. Uh, another story is a young seminarian, someone who's grown up in a very, very devout Jewish family of the conservative denomination, always has wanted to be a rabbi. As he gets to the point of entering seminary, he comes to terms with his homosexuality. You cannot be homosexual and be in Jewish theological seminary, and manages to pass through five years in this very close environment and goes on through ordination and discusses his stories. And I have a lesbian in the military who, before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and after, finally retires and is able to tell her story. Today on Radio Curious, we're talking with Brooke Kroger, the author of a new book called Passing, When People Can't Be Who They Are. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Brooke, what motivated you to right passing? I wrote a biography that came out in 1999 of Fanny Hurst, who was a short story writer and novelist, very, very popular, very famous in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And one of her works was 
imitation of life, which you may or may not be familiar with. It's the story of two women, both widows, both with infant daughters, one white, one black, who join forces at the beginning part of the century to form one household. They become very successful. The African-American woman's daughter is very, very light-skinned and rejects her self-sacrificing mother and passes all the way into whiteness for good, having grown up, of course, with the privileges of whiteness and not understanding why these should not be hers as an adult. And, of course, in those times, they certainly would not be. And the movie of this, which came out in 1934, the first version, and then there's a second one in 1959, and they're rentable. The movie Imitation, Imitation of, Life. of Life. came uh, caused a huge controversy in the African-American intellectual community at the time. And part of my research, of course, was pulling out all that documentation. I was quite fascinated by it. And I found myself just asking the question, does anyone do this anymore? It seemed like such a dated idea, something that we had so, as a society, moved beyond the necessity of. So I just asked the question. I really didn't have a hypothesis. It was just, does anyone do this? Why would they do that? What would be the circumstances in which this would be a compulsion? What are the consequences? What does it mean to live with a lie in the center of your life? Is it a lie? How about deception? How does it corrupt the soul? I mean, these are the questions I had. What are the answers that you've come across? Answers? I don't know if there are answers. I think I haven't supplied answers where there are none, but I have raised the issues and provided all the sociological, ethical, philosophical, anthropological evidence I can, historical also, to create a context for understanding why this would take place, why it would be necessary, and how it affects the individual. And, of course, that comes mostly from the six main stories. And my subjects are very open. You know, they're all on the record. There are many omitted details at the request of my subjects, but there are no changed details. I mean, these are actual stories. How does it affect the individual? Differently. Some people, as I say, cope more easily than others. In every case, no one is comfortable with lying. When it comes to a lie, no one is comfortable. That's one thing. Secondly, as my military subject put it, and I thought very aptly, that when you are having to create a subterfuge around something very central in your life, even though there might be other places where there's purity, where you don't have to do that, it has a way of infecting everything. It just does. So it's very, very difficult. And yet the alternative perhaps is more difficult. We really only get, as far as we know, one shot at being a human being. And how you decide to live your unrepeatable life is a very personal choice. Currently, we have the opportunity to to see a story of passing in the movie called The Human Stain, which is based on uh, Philip Roth's book of the same name. Yes. What are your thoughts about the way Coleman Silk presents his life in The Human Stain? I think it's a very traditional passing narrative, as they say. It's a pre-civil rights story, even though Roth's book and the movie is set in the 1998 Clinton scandal. Silk's passing begins before civil rights, before the war, when the consequences of not passing were much more rigid for an African-American than they would be today. Though, as I found in my story, I was sort of stunned by how many parallels there are between the pre-civil rights stories and the things my subject experienced. The consequences, of course, being different because laws have changed. There aren't legal ramifications. Remember, in this country up until the 1960s, there were still 16 states in which 
intermarriage was prohibited. Up until the Supreme Court case of Loving versus Virginia. Virginia, exactly. So that's stunning. That's not so long ago. And naturally, the reasons for passing would be much more powerful in a time where you really were over against that kind of consequence. I think in our times, we still find that color gets in the way in real ways. There was a study recently I read in Milwaukee of populations who had a felony conviction in their past. So a sociologist named Diva Pager sent out pairs of attractive college students, one black, one white, with identical resumes. And one of her surprise findings, of course, she was studying what happens to you if you have a felony conviction and you're trying to enter the job market at an entry level. What she found was, among other things, that a white person with a felony conviction had a better chance of being employed than a black person with none. And that was last year. So I don't think we can say it's over. And one of the things that passing does, as Warner Sollers said, is a passer becomes an ideal questioner of the status quo. And I think by looking at stories of passing, we're able to get a pretty good idea of where we stand now. And that was, for me, a pretty compelling reason to write the book. From your position, based on your research, when you give the example of a white person with a felony conviction having a better opportunity in getting a job compared to an entry level job. An, an entry level job compared to a black person of equal experience. How do you see that changing? Does passing enhance that change of that unjust application of employment opportunity? Well, here's my real reach. I mean in the case of I actually spoke to the sociologist because I was interested in her case. If you have a felony conviction, apparently you are obliged to put that on your resume. So this would be a question of not passing. I mean, you could omit it, but at great risk. So it's something you really cannot do. It's information that you have to disclose. But pushing that a little further, and this may be a bit of a reach, but I actually think you can make a case, and I'm willing to be argued with, but I think you can make a case for seeing passing as a form of social action. And this is how. Take a case like Anatole Broyard who was a literary critic, a very famous literary critic of a generation or two back. He was not widely known to be African-American, and he was thought to be white. He was at the New York Times. I think Henry Louis Gates explains his story. His election to pass had to do with not being perceived as a black literary critic, which would have peg-posted him in a way of limiting what he would have been able to review, how he would have been received in the world of letters. So he made the decision to pass a radical decision, meaning, you know, you break from your family. I mean, there are huge and painful consequences to this action. It's not cost-free. On his death, some years later, in 1996, Henry Louis Gates writes his story, this remarkable profile of him, and then it becomes widely known. When an act of passing like that is exposed, you can't really view the world the same way again, because, of course, we know he was very effective as a white literary critic, if you will, as a person of the dominant culture, that we didn't have to look at him through the lens of his African-American as we could appreciate his more universal gifts. So in that sense, it's kind of a radical action, don't you think? Maybe one story at a time, work reserved for the special team, not something for everyone, and you can't be impatient. But it's a form of infiltration. It's a form of changing a society from the inside and then from those viewing the exposed act from the outside, you can't really see it the same way again. In the case of my seminary student, 
I spoke with one of his former deans who was quite radicalized on the subject of gay ordination. And indeed, that movement, the conservative Jewish movement, is raising the issue again after a 10-year hiatus, having not dealt with it so successfully a decade ago. And I asked him, why were you radicalized on this subject? And he said, you only have to know one deserving person to have your mind changed. And of course, how do you get to know one deserving person except in the context of the seminary itself? So it sort of has a radical edge, don't you think? It certainly seems that it has that. There's another area of passing that we haven't talked about. You mentioned it as infiltration and possibly investigation. Uh-huh. You've written a lot about Nellie Bly, I the have. <laughs> uh, reporter, one of the first women journalists. And that's something in your professional area as a professor of journalism at New York University. And a journalist of 30 years, P.S., And then there's also passing in, for instance, undercover narcotics agents. Exactly. I left those people aside. I decided private investigators and Kroll associates, et cetera, were work for someone else. But I did mention the undercover exposés of journalists like Barbara Ehrenreich or Ted Conover or Nellie Bly, who would certainly be a precursor of these more modern writers. It's certainly a form. And this is a little bit different, I think, than the passing I deal with most primarily in the book. It has to do with taking on an identity for the sake of exposing something where you can't really present who you are in order to get the information you really want to get. And of course, this gets into murky ethical territory in journalism as well, because I think most of the major organizations would say that a journalist has to present themselves as who they are at some point. On the other hand, sometimes there's really no way to get the information except from the inside, and you can't get inside as a reporter. So these decisions are made cautiously. Well, let's talk about that, perhaps in the connection of Nellie Bly or Ted Conover, who wrote about the life of a prison guard and shared his stories with us here on Radio Curious. At Sing Sing, what exactly did you want to explore, just generally? Generally, that concept, and maybe work with Nellie Bly, since that's an area that you know. Okay. Well, in the case of Nellie Bly, there are several things. One, the expose, which in her case became a precursor of investigative reporting, also served the function of putting women on the main stage of journalism for the first time. This was in the late 1880s and early 1890s. And by using this as a form of social action, it was something that a woman could do, a young woman could do, and get a lot of attention for doing. Her stunts were never going down in a diving bell or up in a balloon. They were always about posing as someone trying to expose the baby-buying trade or getting herself committed to an asylum to find out what conditions were like inside for women who'd been incarcerated. They always had a social action edge, perhaps with the exception of her most famous stunt, which was going around the world in 72 days by hook or by crook. I guess where it's the same as the passing I talk about in this book is that you have to create a persona, you have to stay in character, you need a lot of the aspects of an individual that allow you to be able to bring off the ruse, and she was extremely effective at doing that. It takes a great acting ability and the ability, as I said, to stay in character. Those are the places where it would be common. But in these cases, you're going into a situation, doing it for a very short period of time and coming out. And in the cases in my book, it's more about life decisions, at least for a certain period of time, or getting through a barrier. I guess both are getting through a barrier. 
Perhaps in your book, your stories present the life decisions, as you call them, and in people who pass for infiltrative or investigative motives, it's exactly that. It's a short-term epic. Exactly. It still takes skill and talent. I mean, it takes a lot of skill and talent, and not everyone can do it. That's where it'd be common. I was looking at an article, a column by Patricia Williams that appeared in The Nation last week, talking about the human stain. And she takes a very, very different position. I thought it was kind of interesting, and I'd share it with you. She says, I wish this movie had focused more on this deeper dimension, on passing's cost, not just to Silk himself, but to family, friends, and to society itself. And then she talks about Anna DeVere's remarkable performance. But on the whole, the human stain treats passing as a difficult but basically admirable form of ambition. And that might be how I treat it as well, though I wouldn't put it in those words. She says it too easily glosses, she's talking about the human stain, it too easily glosses over the selfishness, the self-loathing, the cruelty, and yes, the racism it takes to deny not only who you are as an individual, but any connection to one's living, breathing family members. Passing bears the same ugly shape as the psychic denial of white owners when they had children by their slaves but could not see themselves in the faces of those children. Passing is the practice of orphaning oneself. And yet, as I was reading that, I was thinking that passing isn't the only way people orphan themselves. Sometimes when you move beyond a provincial family into a more urban life, there is a a kind of breaking with the past. I don't think that's so unusual. I think self-reinvention is sort of part of our birthright, you know, to some extent. Brooke Kroger, author of Passing, When People Can't Be Who They Are. Thanks for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you would recommend to our listeners. Middlesex. Who wrote Middlesex? Jeffrey Eugenides, which I thought was a great book, read recently. He sort of deals with passing themes, which is one of the things that drew me to it. Gail Collins' America's Women, which is wonderful, romp through 400 years of American women's history. And a third one, They Marched into Sunlight, which takes a few days in Vietnam in 1967 and on the campus of the University of Wisconsin. It's David Marinus's book. Brooke Kroger, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thanks for having me. Brooke Kroger is an associate professor of journalism at New York University and the author of Passing, when people can't be who they are. She recommends three books for us. Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides, America's Women by Gail Collings, and They March Into Sunlight by David Marinus. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 621 5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.